This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director at the Hendricks Center for Cultural Engagement. And my guest is actually a returning expert, Greg Forrester, who uh, is executive director for one of the programs associated with faith and work at the Kern Family Foundation. And the last time we had him, he was with us here live, but this time we've got him by the uh, miracle, or however you want to describe it, of Skype. So he's uh, he's with us remotely, but uh, is ready to discuss really part two of a document that the Kern Family Foundation produces calls, called um, – Theology that works, and uh, and the goal of this of this document is to discuss the connection between really whole life discipleship and faith, and to connect the uh, the idea that that a large portion of most people's lives are spent in venues that we don't talk enough about in the church. So, Greg, welcome. Uh, we're really pleased to have you again, and uh, we're glad that this all the technology is working out very nicely. Thanks very much. I'm uh, I'm really pleased to uh, be with you, whether uh, live or vicariously. <laughs> well, let me let me just dive right in. The the very uh, opening section of part two of this document reads as follows. I'm just going to have you comment on this. The gap between discipleship and everyday life is not only a threat to the church; it also is a major cause of public crises that are now confronting human civilization. Economic systems are becoming dysfunctional because social structures have grown further out of alignment with God's design for image-bearing humanity. Now, that's kind of an ominous beginning to a section. So um, uh, can you uh, elaborate on what you're beginning to get at and, and kind of orient us to kind of where we're going in this second section of this document? Yes, thank you. You know, it's I, I think it's a daunting challenge that we face in the uh, culture that we live in today. Uh, so you're you're right to sense a note uh, of uh, uh, being being sober about the the size of the challenge. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not optimistic. It doesn't mean I don't see a lot of hope. Uh, but we don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. We want to be very realistic about the uh, the magnitude of what's what's before us. You know, actually, after I wrote that document, uh, I heard Dallas Willard say something that says uh, basically the same point I'm making there, but much better put. Uh, he said the cause of our economic crisis is that we cannot say no to our desires. Hmm. Uh, and I think that is that is deeply true, and that's really what I was driving at when I wrote the passage that you uh, that you just read. Uh, that uh, in our culture, we are uh, increasingly we understand uh, the purpose of our lives. We understand what is good for human beings in terms of satisfying our desires, uh, in terms of uh, uh, just going after the things that our hearts tell us uh, will make us happy. Uh, in a, you know, in a spontaneous way, uh, without having the the wisdom of uh, the the longstanding tradition that's informed by Christianity uh, or many other sources of wisdom either uh, uh, that 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 teach us you know that your your heart will will deceive you that the, your natural desires are not actually a guide to what will make you well off or happy. Uh, it's not the good for human beings uh, to satisfy your natural desires. Uh, and the church is the repository of something uh, that, that God has placed in, in human culture in the church uh, uh, that we can then bear out to our neighbors through the way we live our lives and the way we participate in culture uh, and the witness that we bring, the, uh, the, the wisdom that we are able to share uh, with our neighbors in a thousand different ways, uh, in that, and that this is part of every Christian's task, to figure out how do I, in the places where God has put me, uh, embody and, and live out and bear witness to the, the wisdom uh, that the Lord has uh, cultivated in the church. 
So, um, you know, as I listen to this and, and listen to the focus on desires and how desires can mislead, uh, the passage that comes to mind is the parable of the rich fool, which actually mm-hmm. in Luke is designed to, to um, surface what it is that a misdirected passion engenders in someone. And what it engenders ultimately is a kind of uh, – uh, well, in fact, uh, Ephesians says that greed is a form of idolatry. And so what it engenders is a kind of self-focus to the degree that we become little gods, little g, but little gods, and we disconnect ourselves from the people around us, and we disconnect ourselves from God as a result, and we end up not being uh, vessels of service that contribute to the society, but we end up being a force that, uh, that in, a, in effect, uh, sucks life out of society by the, by the selfishness that we, we have. Uh, that, that passage, the first person pronoun appears multiple times in a handful of verses. I think it's like 11 times in three verses or something like this. So that the uh, cliche that you hear, it's all about me, is mm-hmm. very much true about that text. Um, and that, that's what I see you uh, uh, beginning to address and warning in this section. And the way you're trying to do it is to kind of reconnect us, not just to who we are as individuals, but what our uh, social membership is, how we connect to the rest of society. In fact, um, at one point you say our relationships are never merely the product of individual choice, but are always constituted in part by social structures that transcend the individual, and getting having us have this sense of this uh, corporate identity that we have. So uh, this paragraph in particular that I just read from made me uh, think of the question, how does society make claims on us? And uh, how should we respond to those claims? What, what, what is it that God does by placing us in the midst of a society? Yeah, I think um, just going back to uh, uh, something you said a moment ago, I think virtually all of the crises and problems that our society is facing stem from the fact that our culture is no longer able to convince people to put other people's good ahead of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that when people uh, are, do not put other people's good ahead of their own, literally everything falls apart. Uh, it may fall apart slowly, but it will over time fall apart. Uh, and there's no such thing as a perfect system. I mean, this is T.S. Eliot's famous line, we're dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. Mm. Uh, and there's so many people running around Uh, on the right and the left who have a system that's going to save us. Uh, And they want, you know, you just let us enact this system and this will save us from the crisis. The problem is there's no system that can save us if we're not good people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And There's a lot to what it means to be a good person, but putting other people's uh, needs ahead of your own desires is, you know, step one. It's one-on-one. If you haven't got that, Uh, The advanced course is not going to matter if you haven't got that beginner level course. So you asked, your question was how does society place claims on us and what is God doing when he puts us uh, into uh, society? I think unfortunately uh, the the culture we live in has a tendency to think of the human person uh, as a kind of disembodied spirit who lives in a body. Uh, and that uh, that little, uh, the few square inches inside your, your skull is the real you. Uh, and then your relationships with others are kind of subordinate to your own choices, your own uh, desires. Uh, and that's not a realistic picture of the, of the human person. If you just look around you at the way uh, human beings actually live and, uh, uh, and thrive, what you discover is human beings are made for relationship. Human beings are uh, formed by their relationships. Uh, you think about everything that your parents contributed to who you are. Think about everything your schools contributed to who you are. Uh, think about, you know, you can just go down the list of the people around you uh, and think about how much they contributed to who you are. Uh, well, that means uh, basically you do not get to make up the meaning of your own life. 
there's a there's a sentence in a Supreme Court decision from back in the 90s that said that the heart of liberty uh, is the uh, I'm not going to get the exact words right, but the heart of liberty is the right to uh, understand the mystery of human life in your own way. Uh, uh, not in the way someone else uh, uh, tells you. And I think we want to safeguard individual liberties. We don't want to go back to a sort of you know, dark ages where the individual doesn't matter. Uh, but we cannot just have people make up the meaning of their own lives for themselves and, and, and live however they, uh, in whatever way pleases them, because the results of that are what you see all around you. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the analogy I like to use, and there's a little pastor in me, so I like pictures, is imagine what it is to drive on a highway if there were no lanes to drive in. Uh -huh. Everyone did what was right in their own – some of that goes on on the highway already, but uh -huh. uh, you know, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and you, there aren't any rules, and everyone goes where they think they deserve to go and you're not concerned about the other people driving on the highway that that that's nothing but chaos and uh, uh, the other element, the other picture that comes to mind, as I hear you, is that is that when we see people only as things, as chess pieces to move on a board because they occupy a certain space, and we don't think about who they are as people made in the image of God, what their souls are about, what the connection to them might be, those kinds of things, we really right. demean life. Yeah, and I think um, that that image of chess pieces is uh, a profound one. Uh, Aristotle actually uses the image of uh, it's not chess yet, but uh, drafts, which was a chess-like game in that culture. Uh, and he said a, a human being is like a piece in a game of drafts. If you take it away from the board, it has no uh, purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, the a, a human being has no purpose except to participate in you know the game just to, or, or its social life. Uh, just as uh, a piece in a board game has no purpose and becomes a meaningless thing uh, if it is not participating in, uh, uh, in, in the game that it's made for. And I think creating that balance between, on the one hand, seeing every human being as precious and made uh, in God's image, uh, and on the other hand, uh, having an, a, a culture with integrity is the way I like to put it. Mm -hmm. uh, the integrity is the word uh, that I use because it means it fits together. Literally, the word integrity means it fits together. So we need a culture that fits together. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the image of ships uh, that uh, he says uh, uh, society is like a fleet of ships. Uh, and if they all sail wherever they want to, regardless of the needs of the other ships, they'll crash into each other, mm -hmm. uh, or else they'll drift apart and uh, become and and the fleet will will disappear because all the ships sailed in ten thousand directions. Yeah, that's my and, car analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think yeah, and I guess uh, uh, with the rise of the car, that might be more uh, more relatable for people. Uh, but we do want individuals to be uh, stewards of their own lives. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, God, this is the stewardship thing we were talking about in our part one of our discussion. Right. Uh, and I think it's a precious gift of our culture that uh, more than any other culture, it takes seriously. Uh, the dignity of the individual and the fact that people are made to be stewards, that everyone, not just a few people at the top, uh, are made to be stewards. And the challenge before us is how do we maintain uh, that sort of that precious, uh, that precious gift of our culture that it values human beings uh, as, as individuals and as stewards? Uh, how do we how do we take that seriously and not lose it, but also have a culture with integrity? Yeah, and the hard part here is is that our own culture in the West, particularly in North America and in Europe, has so elevated the individual that the individual has lives life with a sense of entitlements that come to them. These are things uh -huh. that I deserve. These and and the and the first lens we put on is kind of the lens of what will society give me? What am I entitled to? And what I what I hear throughout this entire section that we're in uh, of this theology that works peace is really the, the the first lens that needs to go on the glasses that you use is not one of entitlement it's one of service it's one of of engaging toward and moving towards another as opposed to asking what can they give me and the difference in the direction of that arrow makes a lot of difference in how people live and how they make their choices yeah, and I think it's simply a matter of coming to realize how we're made, uh, that uh, we are not made uh, as isolated individuals. We are made to be in relationship, we're made to be in community, we're made to be in culture. Uh, and that means that whatever is going on in our culture, we are implicated. 
Uh, when we say things happening in our society, whether it's locally or nationally, uh, whether it's you know economic or political or uh, family or, or anything, and you know wh whatever kind of issue it is, and it, we are implicated in the life of our culture because we are made to be in it. Uh, we're embedded uh, in in our culture. We're embedded in our local communities. We're embedded in our national community. These things matter. Uh, and and like you said, the first lens we need to put it on is how can we be of service. Uh, how can we be a blessing to those around us because we are implicated in this this web of relationships that we're a part of? Now, the hard th thing here, or a hard thing, it seems to me, is another concept that you put alongside this general kind of placement in society, and that's the idea that we're exiles, uh, mm -hmm. which which adds a whole other dimension to the equation because it almost suggests, and, and I'm floating this idea really, it almost suggests that. Although we're in the society and a part of our society, we have to be careful that our hearts aren't too so connected to the society that we think that's all that our identity comes from, that there's something that transcends that cultural connection, and that is the fact that we are representatives. Exiles is one way. Another image that's sometimes used as ambassadors representing the kingdom might be another image to get at the same idea. What does that add to this kind of conception of identity that we're, we're talking about here? Right. It means that we cannot reduce the mission of the church to the culture simply to uh, the success of the culture measured in worldly terms. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the world would agree with us on a number of things that we want the culture uh, to achieve. You know, so we want, uh, you know, if our next door neighbor's out of a job, we want him to have a job. You know, if, if, uh, if there's a broken home, we want to see that uh, uh, harmony restored. Uh, there's all kinds of things on which we would agree with our neighbors uh, uh, in terms of what, what we want for the life of our society. Uh, but we, we cannot simply uh, operate only in those areas where we uh, and, and, the, and the culture around us agree about the ends. Uh, and and while if one danger is to simply dismiss the culture because uh, the, that's the world and that's you know that's under the dominion of of the evil one and it has nothing to do with the world has nothing to do with the church that's one error mm -hmm. uh, uh, to think that we're not implicated in the life of our culture the opposite error would be to say uh, well it's imperative for us to be beneficial to our culture and we can't force our faith on people which is true mm -hmm. therefore the only thing we can do is to promote the ends that our society approves of that we also approve of uh, that's insufficient uh, as ambassadors of uh, uh, something that is higher and greater uh, we also have to bear witness to righteousness in those areas where our culture is going wrong. Uh, we have to, because uh, we are implicated uh, in those areas, just as we are implicated. There are consequences in, in the, for those choices. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, you cannot do the good stuff well if you don't also take, if, if, you, don't, if you don't bear witness of, against the bad stuff, you can't go promote the good stuff and be effective. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it's, uh, the, these, this combination of images, I think, is very, very important. We're embedded in society. We have a part in it. We contribute to it. We're called to serve it. We have to watch that our sense of entitlement doesn't overwhelm us so that it gets in the way of our ability to serve. We're here as exiles or as ambassadors. We actually represent and are here to represent something that, that transcends the particular nation or the particular community we're a part of. It, it That also gives us the ability to connect with other nations and other communities in the process because our concern is for humanity at large, not just the particular location that, we're, that God has us in. There are all kinds of ramifications for that. In fact, there's probably a whole uh, podcast that could be built around just those ideas that we've just gone through. Yeah, and Go ahead. And I just you just uh, mentioned something. You said uh, one thing that this equips us to do is to have a concern for people who are not a part of our culture. Uh, I want to give you an illustration of that that is, has been very powerful for me. Um, a co-worker of mine here at the Kern Family Foundation, until he retired recently, uh, Tim Crewall used to say, uh, politicians want us to think of the Chinese as a billion people who are going to steal our jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how, they, that's how they want us to think of the Chinese. We need to think of the, the Chinese as a billion customers that we could be serving. Mm -hmm. uh, and if our economy were producing things that they wanted to buy because it was beneficial for them, they'd be better off and we'd be better off. Uh, they'd have more jobs and we'd have more jobs too. 
Uh, it's not a, we're not, we don't have to be in competition with them uh, uh, at an, in an ultimate sense. Uh, we can both benefit. Yeah, uh, I, I think, think that's, that's a hugely important concept for a whole lot of discussions, not just areas like international trade and international relations, but even when we think about the pluralism that's coming into our own country through the processes mm-hmm. of immigration, oh, yes. et cetera, yes. it certainly Im- impacts how we view uh, those questions, whether I see a person of a, another race or another background as an other that I need to keep at arm's length, or whether it's someone who has something to contribute to the society uh, as they come, if we, uh, if we will uh, permit it. And what a what a blessing the church could be to this uh, this culture, which is so uh, uh, pluralistic in ethnic, racial, religious, uh, economic, and other respects. What a blessing we could be if we uh, uh, showed our culture the possibilities for harmony and cooperation across racial and ethnic lines. Uh, you know, e- across economic lines, so we find ways uh, for mutual benefit rather than seeing competition as an absolute uh, where everything, anything that I gain must come at your expense. Uh, uh, the, the, the opportunity for us as Christians to demonstrate within, our, not as a separate thing from our culture, but within our culture, uh, the possibilities for harmony uh, and, and flourishing and abundance that can, that can be mutually reinforcing across these lines. Uh, I think that 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 it speaks uh, it speaks very powerfully to uh, uh, the opportunity to bear witness for the for the work of the Lord. And I actually think we're walking into the ethical core of Scripture. And here's what I mean: that uh, that at the core of what the cross is about is a reconciliation. And that reconciliation is not just between the individual and God. That reconciliation is ultimately a cosmic reconciliation. It's a reconciliation between peoples. It's a reconciliation between the people and their function in the creation so that it's harmonious. It's a comprehensive reconciliation, and that's what it's an evidence of. And a second dimension of it that's also important is when Jesus gets asked what's the most important commandment, you know, he puts both of these things together because he has love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, and the two very much uh, go together and, and impact each other. And so that's what you're evidencing. So there's a sense in which, you know, we, we have bought in I think a mistake that we've made is is that we have bought into the sacred secular uh, dichotomy that our culture wants us to have to keep religion kind of off to the side and arm's length. But in mm-hmm. fact, the biblical picture is that there's an integrative, or what you all have called consistently a holistic uh, dimension to this, in which you don't divide the secular and the sacred, because it's all interwoven with, within itself. There's no way to split that atom without having a nuclear explosion. And in the process, um, in the process, we need to get people to see that every act that they perform out of their uh, out of their religious life, and no matter where it is, no matter what building they're in, is a sacred act of one kind or another. Amen, brother. Preach it. That's all. Uh, uh, that's all fantastic. And the only thing I would add to that is that uh, harmony tends to produce flourishing. Uh, it's not an absolute, you know, every single time, but most of the time when people are in harmony and in right relationship with one another, uh, flourishing of every description, uh, economic flourishing, uh, you, na- you know, political flourishing, you name it, that, you know, society works better that way. Uh, and I think it is God's intention uh, for the church to uh, help, help our communities flourish. Uh, uh, by creating that harmony and pointing people to how they can have it. Well, another idea that's that's in this paper that comes next is this is what you call um, two dangers that come out of a virtuous citizenship. You know, we uh, one thing I was going to do is have us define virtuous virtuous uh, citizenship. So let me do that before I ask this question. It says virtuous citizenship means participating in social structures such as the home, workplace, and community in a way that puts the good of our neighbors first rather than using these structures as tools to serve our individual desires. So what we've been talking about here for the since the beginning of the podcast. Just as citizenship or just as rather discipleship means more than doing religious works. But is a calling for all of life. Virtuous citizenship means more than doing a special set of citizenship works. You have that in quotes, such as voting. But is a calling that reshapes all of our participation in social structures. So there's this call to 
to participate in and to be this virtuous citizen, if you will. And you say there are two dangers. Here they are. Social collectivism that violates the dignity of the individuals on one end, and an isolation of the individual that tends to produce over-accommodation to the prevailing culture on the other. Now, I think you've already alluded to this, uh, but why don't you develop those uh, those dangers uh, sure, in terms think- of what we're talking about? Yeah, I think one of the great things uh, uh, historically that I'm very, very passionate about uh, making sure we don't go back on uh, is the the advance that's been brought forward in history by the church, uh, I would say especially in the Reformation, but not exclusively in the Reformation, uh, on uh, championing the, the right and the responsibility of the individual to be faithful and to be virtuous and to be a steward of God's world. Uh, you know, I, I sat in on a panel discussion about five years ago where uh, a, a, a group of theologians uh, that were ecumenical, both Protestant and Catholic, uh, uh, were talking about uh, all of the problems that are created by this uh, sovereignty of the conscience idea uh, and how we've, we've really, uh, we've, we, we've got we've to stop giving so much room for sovereignty of the conscience and we've got to just, we've got to let uh, institutions tell us more uh, the meaning of our beliefs. And I was kind of, uh, I was kind of uh, uh, impertinent. I raised my hand and I said, you know, I'm just trying to think what Martin Luther would say if he were here. Uh, what's, you know, what's he, what's he supposed to say to the Lord? Uh, you know, Lord, I wish I could have borne witness for you at the Diet of Worms, but you know, uh, the human self is situated in this dense web of human relationships that <laughs> is constitutive of its personhood, Lord. And so, uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they squirmed a little bit in, in trying to answer that question. I think we never want to go back on Brother Martin. Mm-hmm. We never want to, we never want to go back on the fact that ever, as, as Brother Martin puts it, every individual is responsible for his own faith, mm-hmm. or he, he said, every man is responsible for his own faith. Um, and I think we, we don't want to reduce people to cogs in a machine. Uh, we've got to make sure that uh, just as uh, Brother Martin in the 95 Theses was standing up for the, uh, the spirituality and the freedom of every, in, every person in the church over against the attempt to exploit them uh, by, uh, by powerful uh, elites, uh, we've got to keep that dignity of, of every human being front and center. At the same time, uh, and this goes to the other danger, mm-hmm. uh, if, if the only piece we have is that uh, dignity of the individual thing, uh, then uh, every individual will start to make up his own, uh, his own uh, plan for what, uh, uh, what we're going to do in the household, in the business, in the community. And uh, people will begin to serve themselves instead of serving others. Uh, and, and that can be very insidious. It's not always an explicit, you know, I'm going to be a selfish person and just cheat, lie, cheat, and steal, you know, uh, uh, to, to serve myself. It can be very insidious. It can be very self-deceptive. Um, what, we, what we do is we think that we're serving other people, but we're serving other people in a way that we define and because the heart is deceitful, we define service to others in the way that actually delivers the payoff to us, whether it's a payoff in you know, material benefit or a payoff in some psychological benefit that we get out of you know, using other people in various ways, uh, emotional benefits, you know, status, um, you know, uh, wanting to be in a certain position in the relationship or whatever it is. Uh, uh, and and it, that, that runs the gamut from the top to the bottom. Uh, you find it in every, because the problem is, the problem is not uh, one, one party or the other, one class or the other. The, the, the problem is in the human heart, and we've all got that, we've all got that problem to deal with. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn made this famous comment uh, after having been imprisoned and tortured uh, by, uh, by his enemies. Uh, for simply for for standing up for for you know the the, the right to the right to uh, uh, tell the truth and not uh, uh, not just parrot uh, what the what the Soviet uh, authorities told him to say you know if anybody could say I'm good and my opponents are evil it would be Alexander Solzhenitsyn sitting in the gulag being tortured but he had this famous line where he said the line between good and evil is not a line between one party or another it runs through every human heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for him in that place to say that really, I think, is a sobering reminder uh, of how insidious this, uh, uh, th- this, this 
tendency to serve ourselves can be. So we have to be very careful to be on the watch for that, and not only in our own hearts, but we need to think about how can we build a culture? How can we participate in a, in a culture uh, that leads people in that direction? Uh, because it can't just be me thinking about me uh, and, and you thinking about you, because then it just becomes narcissistic and selfish again. That's right. Uh, and, you know, so there was be... a quote this week in Time magazine. They had interviewed uh, Pope Francis I and asked him to describe himself. And he replied in one sentence, I am a sinner. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting that, uh, that that would be the place where he would start, because that, that takes – that takes the sense of entitlement out of the equation. Uh, that that tells you that I am a person who has need for a spiritual connection and a spiritual transformation, a spiritual metamorphosis, and it may not be something I can supply for myself. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Absolutely. And I I was about to say that is not natural for human beings to do that. That's right. That's why if, if you look back in history... Uh, you see a, a dramatic difference between cultures where Christianity has been an influence and cultures where Christianity has never been an influence, uh, uh, or where the influence is long past because the the gospels, uh, you know, after the gospel passed away for a long time. You see a dramatic difference in in many ways. Uh, these these cultures find ways of affirming. Uh, uh, values of service to others in ordinary everyday life. Uh, And now I'm not, you know, I don't want to be triumphalist and say, well, Christian cultures are better than non-Christian cultures, so we should let them, you know, roll forth and conquer the world. Uh, But I I do think there is a striking uh, difference in history where the gospel has been an influence in the culture. You do find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's it, that, that, that is an indispensable part of what Christianity is. If we don't have that, then there's a, there's a piece missing uh, from our Christianity because, again, we're made to be in culture. We're made to be in community. Well, the, the, the interesting thing here is we're, we're entering into a section in the discussion where it talks about participating in social structures, and you say, on the one hand, there's an affirmation of the value of that participation that needs to take place, and yet, on the other hand, there's a participation that needs to be critical about how we do it. And what's interesting is, when you look at society, you break it down into three pieces, and I, I found this fascinating. The family, which everyone talks about, so that, that's an obvious one. The workplace, where everyone functions but we don't talk about it very much. And then thirdly, civil civil community, where I think for most Christians they would go family, workplace, and church. You know, mm-hmm. So there's this whole dimension of our connection to the larger world that goes missing. So in, I'm being critical, not of what you've written, but in thinking about these three areas. In the family area, I think we, we give a lot of energy and attention to how the family works and how it should work. I think for the most part, we do okay there. We may not perform well there, but at least we're, we're talking about it and engaging it and trying to think through how it ought to work. Like C.S. Lewis said, the road is hard, but the path is clear. Exactly. And when it comes to the workplace, I think most people are without a clue. I mean, I, I think they they go in their jobs, they do their work, they take their paycheck, but the way they view it is, uh, this is something I have to go through and do in order to do the rest of what I really want to do with my life. And so this huge chunk of where they invest themselves is this kind of schizophrenic experience 
They know they have to do it, and they're going to be there, but they don't have any clue what really to do with it or how to view it. And then the third area also is a problem, the whole uh, civil community idea, because we define our community so narrowly in terms of our own spiritual experience and our own spiritual community that we forget a vast web of networks that we automatically live in. Um, and, and that aren't a part of the community that we tend to identify with. Not that church community identification isn't important, it's actually a part of that civil community idea, but, but the civil community is much bigger than that, and our, and our view and our engagement has to be much bigger than that in order to be holistic. Fair, a right. fair summary of, of what we're dealing with? Oh, absolutely. And I would only say that the only reason church is not on that list is because I'm assuming that church is the launch pad, if you will, uh-huh. uh, from which we are going into these areas. And I'm trying to list what are the areas to which we, you know, the life of the church grows out uh, from, uh, uh, from the uh, aircraft carrier in the church. We launch our missions. Where do we launch them to? Uh, and I think the civil community if you look at uh, the writings of any of the great figures in Christian history uh, who were reformers or revivalists, uh, you find consistently they have things to say about their civil communities. Uh, as uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, the, the, the people who believed most firmly in the existence of an eternal life are the ones who were the most concerned and did the most good uh, for the temporal world. Uh, the, the, the more people were rooted in heaven, the more uh, good they were uh, to the communities in which they lived. Uh, and I think that's true. I'm not remembering the word for word, the quote there, but it's close to that. Yeah, we're so uh, heavenly minded, we actually are earthly good. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. and you know, it was funny, uh, uh, there was a pastor in my church, one of the younger pastors, who gave a sermon in which he said, I heard this saying, uh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You know, I think it's the worst thing I've ever heard. If <laughs> yeah. you're heavenly minded, you'll be earthly good. That's exactly if right. If you're no earthly good, you're not heavenly minded. Exactly. I thought, uh, wow, uh, uh, for, for one thing, uh, uh, I've, I've met too many people who conform to that saying to be surprised by it. I'm, I'm, it's delightful to me to see him actually shocked. Yes. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful sign uh, uh, that, that he hasn't just become jaded about it. Because um, that's, that's, that's where I often am. Uh, yes. But yeah, I think I think just ha- seeing the civil community as a place into which we launch our mission uh, from the church is uh, is a really important thing. So on the one hand, we've got this affirmation: we're in the society, we've got to function in it, we've got to not only affirm our role in it, we are participants in it whether, by by default, whether we recognize it or not. And so then the question becomes: well, how do we participate in it and participate in it well? And, and then the second part of it that's also important is uh, is what you call transformation, which implies that as we engage the culture, there is a critique that is going on, and there is a, a counter-modeling. And, I, and I'm saying both intentionally here, because the critique deals with what we may say verbally about what goes on in our culture, how we address it. But the modeling is a way of picturing that critique, of giving it flesh and blood and breath and life. Um, so that the critique isn't isn't just an academic exercise of words only, but you actually see it in practice. Um, and and I, what I'm seeing you encourage people towards is a holistic life that does both, that is conscious about what verbally it says about uh, what's going on in the society, and that also is making an effort to be a model in a in a counter kind of way. And, and I'm going to make a distinction here between not merely just shaking your finger at the world and saying the way you live is wrong, but actually trying to produce a positive model for what right living looks like so that there's something put in its place that people can see and grasp and get their hands around and hopefully move towards. Absolutely. I think uh, one of my favorite examples of that uh, is Josiah Wedgwood, who is the uh, an 18th century figure who is known uh, to evangelicals largely because of his work in the anti-slavery movement, mm-hmm. uh, which we evangelicals uh, uh, think and talk about uh, quite a bit. Uh, but not many many people know how did he come to have the money and the social prestige uh, to contribute to the anti-slavery movement. Well, uh, it's because he he helped to invent the modern factory. Uh, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, if you begin to, if you look at the early factories that emerged during the Industrial Revolution, uh, these new towns were springing up in the in the middle of nowhere, where you know nobody lived there before, and now suddenly tons and tons of people are tightly packed in uh, around the factory, uh, and they choose to be there because the wages are better than than farm life. 
but there's no boundaries because there's no established culture. Uh, you know, there's there's no rules. There's no uh, the, the the sort of the rhythm and the cultural boundaries of of agricultural life have all been uh, disrupted. So you had rampant alcoholism. You mm. had uh, absenteeism. You had, and the the factory owners really uh, uh, very often had a, a sort of aloof. Uh, paternalistic and arrogant, you know, view of their workers as, you know, well, what do you expect? Of course, they all, you know, get drunk, and and of course they're, you know, showing up, uh, ha showing up at noon uh, because they they were hungover. What, you know, what better could you expect? Well, Josiah Wedgwood came in and said, no, 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 this is not the way human beings are made to live. We're going to give you a proper community. We're going to give you clean. We're going to give you a clean environment. Sanitation was a huge issue. We're mm -hmm. going to give you a clean environment. We're going to give you medical care. We're going to have you know religious services. We're going to have, we're going to have all of the services and and things that a normal community has. In exchange, we expect you to show up for work every working day. You will show up on time. You will work very hard. You'll work the entire day. You will have specific tasks that we will assign you to do because the old way was just you showed up and you did whatever task was lying around, mm -hmm. right? No, we will specialize you so that you learn to do this task with excellence. And I will set high standards for your work because I expect that of you. And this was just a tremendously better model mm -hmm. for how to run a factory. Uh, and as I, as I like to say, it was more productive because it was more humane but it was also more humane because it was more productive. Hmm. That is, uh, you set high expectations for these workers and they deliver uh, because human beings are made to be workers. Uh, and it was the, the factory workers who did not expect hard work, who did not expect productivity. Uh, those were the people who were really being demeaning uh, to, their, to their people. Uh, but Wedgwood set very high standards and was strict. Uh, about the quality of work and the amount of work that he expected from people, and and it was better for them. You know, the workers wanted to work in that factory where the standards were high because it was a better uh, a better way. Uh, and what he did, this is why I bring it up to your question. It demonstrated that this was a better way. It was an so incarnational other, model of what was we we're talking about. Absolutely, and so other factories emulated it mm -hmm. because it was proven better. Mm -hmm. And uh, my view is that Christians, if Christianity is what we claim it is and what the Bible claim it is, Christians should be able to do stuff better mm -hmm. uh, because we have inside information about how the universe works, because the Spirit has set us free uh, from, the, from the chains of our old nature uh, and, and, and so forth. We ought to be able to do that kind of thing. That, you know, Josiah Wedgwood uh, was able to do what he did because of the, the Christianity uh, that he had. Uh, and I think we ought to be able to do that as well. And if, if, if we're not, then shame on us. Yes. Well, I, I think that this, is, this gets at another theme that, that comes right off of this sense of this calling uh, in terms of being both a participant and an affirmer and, and contributing to the transformation, hopefully in a positive way of society. You know, when we did this uh, podcast with Andy Crouch, he talked about that transformation happening at a very localized level, that, that I may not – I, as an individual, may not be able to change the world. That may be an unrealistic vision, but I can impact my neighborhood. I can impact my local school, the, the places where I am regularly. Uh, I can impact uh, my workplace by how I live. And one of the things you talk about is a productive call, which is the idea of of producing blessing. I think that's a simple way to think about it, that if you act, ask, what does service do? Service produces blessing. It serves and it serves well. And in the midst of serving and serving well, it produces blessing, and it produces blessing as a virtue for anyone who comes across it, and hopefully they sent the person who experiences that blessing senses that and appreciates it and is drawn towards it as a result. Um, I, I'm sensing that's kind of, uh, if I can say it, the goal of, of where you're trying to take people. Fair? Right. I think that is fair. Um, I'm greatly influenced by Lester DeCoster, uh, who wrote a book called Work, The Meaning of Your Life, and he identifies two major elements uh, of, of getting God into our work, and, and one of them is uh, we serve our neighbors. Uh, that we are we are making the world a better place because of what we do. I think that doesn't just apply to work. It's just a general. Uh, uh, it's a calling to the way we live our lives. That what we do should make the world a better place. Uh, and the other one was that we inwardly do it for God. Mm -hmm. uh, that we, as a matter of our own, uh, and I think you need both. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you leave out the inwardly do it for God part, then you're you're moving in the direction of of reducing people to cogs in a machine, uh, because the only thing that matters is your effect on the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, your inward motivation and identity are being left out in that case. Uh, and because individuals matter, we don't want to lose that. Um, but we have the, the danger of, of integrating faith and work or integrating faith and culture uh, without that uh, other call of, uh, you know, are we objectively making the world a better place? Can we point to things and say, the world is better, here's a way and here's a way and here's a way that the world is better because of what we do? Because if it's only about doing it for God inwardly, and we're not actually holding ourselves accountable to produce blessings for our neighbors, uh, then it becomes narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, faith work integration becomes uh, just another way of, of navel-gazing and thinking about how wonderful we are. Yeah, uh, so- I, th- I, th- I think that's a, a, a profound observation in the sense that, that – uh, Either, either if we're if it's just if it's just for God, and I really don't care about the neighbor that I serve. It, I only reach out to them because I want a notch on my belt, if I can mm-hmm. say it that way. Yeah. Uh, that becomes obvious. That's usually vi- obviously that usually becomes obviously transparent to the person you're trying to serve, and they actually um, recoil from that to a certain degree. And if I just serve people without the sense of my accountability and responsibility and my desire to please God, then I lose uh, this tension, which happens in a fallen world, which is I may be very, very faithful in my effort and my attempt. It may not be entirely appreciated by the person who I seek to serve. So if my value is totally left in the hands of how they respond to what I'm doing, I could be left out in the cold in a certain ex- to a certain extent. But if I understand that I've been faithful to a living God, whether that service has been entirely appreciated or not, I have another place uh, for my for my identity to get it, its sense of, of value for what it is that I've done. Yeah, I think um, uh, I mentioned DeCoster, uh, he got interested in uh, this whole connection between faith and work. Uh, he was a professor at a Christian college, but uh, in the evenings he taught a speech class for factory workers in his city. Hmm. Uh, and uh, he was just uh, very pained by hearing them talk about uh, how their work was burdensome to them, uh, and how they just felt like there was no meaning or purpose in it. And he wanted to point them to uh, the meaning and purpose of it. And th- the reason I bring this up from what you said is he knew that the fact that their work had a positive impact on the world was uh, not enough, that they had to have this sense of inward identity and motivation hmm. that were rightly ordered, uh, uh, that that mattered just as much. Uh, that it's, it's insufficient to say we've got the factory workers at the machines doing their jobs and, and keeping the city running. Uh, he knew that you had the, it mattered whether those factory workers understood what they were doing and were doing it for the right reasons mm. uh, and, and had the right sense of their own identity and their own understanding of their place in the social system uh, that their work participates in. Well, uh, so that's why you wrote the book. That's uh, interesting. Well, I, I think that this is uh... – uh, there's another observation in the midst of this discussion that I thought was also uh, worth reflecting on, and it goes um, it, that what we're not talking about here is a seizing of control and power. It says, insofar as relationships and institutions legitimately come under our stewardship responsibility, we are called to make them more uh, more like the way they should be. And if we discern a calling, we should not be shy about following God into spaces uh, we might not otherwise enter. While God doesn't like busybodies, He does bless entrepreneurial thinking, enterprising, adaptive responses to challenges. And then you go on to talk about that the goal here is not a seizing of power, but really a stewarding or a serving well. That that really, if you ask what you should assess, it's not how much do I control what's happening here or how much should I seek to control more of it, but am I really uh, serving in the way I ought to? I think that's right. The the tension that I'm trying to, uh, as you can see, a, a consistent theme here is there are two errors, and we've got to we've got to keep steer them between in, them. Yeah. That's right. Uh, in this case, the, on the one hand, we don't want to be complacent. Uh, if if we have a genuine opportunity to move into a space and be a force for good there, uh, we want to be entrepreneurial and self-starting rather than kind of sit back and only deal with the things that happen to uh, drift 
into our uh, uh, into our uh, sort of site, our line of sight. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be proactive and entrepreneurial and going out and finding opportunities to do good things. But we can't let that become a desire to seize power. Uh, we, we only want to go out and do these things in places where we genuinely have a stewardship, where we genuinely have uh, a calling to be there and a calling to be uh, stewarding that area. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a major mistake to think that uh, the, the goal is to start by going out and grabbing as much power as we can, and then once we've got that power, we can start using it to impose godliness on the areas where we've where we've grabbed that that power, uh, because that that just doesn't work for all kinds of reasons. Number the, the number one reason being that our neighbors uh, who are not Christian are also made for stewardship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the the image of God was was defaced by the fall, but our neighbors are still made in the image of God, and they're precious in God's sight. Uh, and we don't want to take away their stewardship. Uh, and if, if seizing power becomes the dominant uh, force uh, or, or, um, uh, or, or becomes the, uh, the major way in which we're engaging with our culture, uh, then we're essentially, we become in competition with the stewardship of our non-Christian neighbors. We don't want to be in competition with the stewardship of our non-Christian neighbors. We want to acknowledge the stewardship that God's given them. Uh, uh, we 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 want to again seek that harmony and flourishing together. Well, th- this uh, this is oh, I think what you mean to some degree. And uh, talk about another concept when you talk about infusing sh- shalom into civilization. That what we've just been talking about, how we serve, uh, that it's not a seeking of power, but it is an attempt to contribute uh, to flourishing and to contribute in a way that is both affirming and yet uh, critical in moving towards transfa- transformation in the society is is the concept of infusing shalom is that is that uh... yes uh, and I'm I'm drawing on some some theological work there that is not my own uh, and I'm always I'm always hesitant and nervous when I start to get into technical uh, theological terminology but uh, really the point I'm trying to make there is uh, that we are transformed by our faith mm-hmm. uh, we need to be transformed by our faith and when we then go out and participate in society in a way that is transformed by our faith, uh, that does not just impact us, it impacts the society around us. Uh, so th- in, in a sense, uh, the transformation that's worked in our lives by, uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, is manifested uh, and has an influence in human culture, not in a redemptive way. I mean, that's the social gospel. We don't want to. We don't want to go down that road. Uh, but while we we need to avoid a social gospel, we do need to. We do need to say, if we are living faithfully, we should see an infusion of that transformation impacting our uh, our culture. That our culture is different than it would be if we were not present. Join us next week for part two of The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?